It was the custom, I learned later, always to ask Lady Marchmain to read aloud on evenings of family tension. She had a beautiful voice and great humor of expression. That night, she read part of the wisdom of Father Brown, but the horrors of that evening were not yet over. with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Marie Bates, and today I am joined by a special guest, Amanda McLernan, who is here to discuss with me one of the most important Catholic novels, Brideshead Revisited, by Evelyn Waugh. Welcome, Mandy. Thanks for having me, Marie. Yes, thank you for joining me. So obviously this is not a Chesterton book, but... Waugh was definitely influenced by Chesterton and read Chesterton thoroughly, so there's enough of a connection here for us to be excited to bring this on to our our Chesterton podcast today. Mandy, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself? Sure. I went to the University of Dallas for my undergrad, where I focused in history, but that kind of piqued my love of literature um, there a lot, so read many good books. Um, and then I went into teaching, so I was a teacher for nine years where I taught history, literature, kind of a mix, mostly history, but again, that love of literature was still there, and so I often agreed to do some of those classes, and I am now retired, which is weird to say, because <laughs> um, I'm 31, but I have four kids at home, so that is what takes up the bulk of my time currently. Yes, beautiful. Mandy is a friend obviously and a part of my tiny little book club here but also is the sister of my sister-in-law so her sister married my brother which is just (laughs) fantastic since david and i have moved to wisconsin we've we formed this tiny little book group and brideshead revisited was one of the books that we selected as a group it's been a really great outlet i think for all of us moms to have adult friends to talk to about intellectual and moral matters and just to to read things that maybe we just didn't make time to read before yeah very much helps you be reflective because when you're doing dishes and changing diapers your mind's a little numbed (laughs) yeah (laughs) so to think about higher things and spiritual things is is always a good yeah addition So, so we're kind of gonna I mean, the group of us is normally six, but today we're just going to let you in on our book club, just a little taste of kind of what it's like. We're just going to talk about this book today, and it's so interesting. Wa had quite a journey into faith, so we're going to be talking about that today, and obviously Chesterton had his own journey, which we've talked about many times before on Pints with Chesterton. Um, Today we're going to focus on somebody else, but I think that you will feel the spirit of Chesterton and in kind of what he wrote, though Waugh's writing style is very different. Okay, so Mandy. Yes. (laughs) This book was so highly recommended to me. Same. I think since the University of Dallas. Yeah, I I was going to say, I feel like I've heard it from many different areas of my life and different circles, like, you got to read this book. Yeah. So I, I had some preconceived notions, I guess, going into it. I knew vague details about it being set in England and at what time and 
and whatnot. But particularly my sister, who is very uh, emphatic when she talks about literature. She's also a lover of literature. She said, as I was reading this, because she read it before me, uh, just wait till you get to the end. It's crazy. You know, and so... <laughs> like some uh, crazy plot twist yes, or something you're thinking. Yes, and I've read a lot of, like, one of the books Mandy and I read earlier, la- or I guess last year, was um, A Murder Mystery by Agatha Christie. So, you know, in my mind, my mind's going everywhere. What is right. going to happen in this novel? Yeah, like some crazy event or and, something. And my sister also knows I read Anna Karenina last year, which is like you know, very drama, Oh, sure. you know, very dramatic and everything. So do you agree that you have to read through to the end to really see the, uh, oh yeah, the full extent of what was happening to you and to the characters throughout the novel? I don't think it even makes sense until you read that last sentence. Okay. Like, thank you. Yeah. Yes. And, and it, I don't know, to me, it was like, you were reading someone's journey and you can't understand someone's dream. Like, yes. you were there walking with them. Yeah. So you don't have the revelation until they do. And yes. that doesn't happen until the last sentence, literally. Yes. Yeah, I love how he did that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so briefly, just to tell you, just really quickly, this is a, a book about Charles Ryder. We open on him as a almost 40-year-old man telling a story um, from the past, from his past. Um, and we're going to kind of see... He encounters um, first a friend, Sebastian, at school at Oxford, and then Sebastian's family, which is this, if I think for England, big Catholic family, which <laughs> that in and of itself is uh, stand, stands out in England. And it's about his basically atheism and skepticism and criticism yeah. and how he interacts with this family, with his friend, with his friend's family, and... Um, really wrestles with the meaning of life, Mm -hmm. his own purpose in life. And we see him running away a lot in this novel and trying to escape a lot in this novel. And, And then we come to a point of conversion at the end, which is what my sister calls crazy, Yeah, which is awesome and true. It is. Yeah. It's monumental. Yeah. And I think it's the culmination of years and years of this man's life and it's just one moment that it finally all comes together and so that's I think why you get that crazy sensation yeah it's almost like you didn't see it coming but then you think about it and you're like wait this was just waiting to happen yes and it it wasn't just one event and then boom this big change but rather and a culmination of his whole life of yeah. all of these experiences and interactions. Mm-hmm. I do think that one of the things that Evelyn Waugh does really well in this book is he he makes these people so ordinary in a way. Yeah. Because we see all of the characters have their different flaws and sins and struggles, right? Right. And in the family, they're all Catholics. Mm-hmm. And, um, and Charles mentions at one point when they're all trying to explain to him mm-hmm. a, a point of catholic doctrine basically or like how the sacraments are supposed to happen he's like right. you don't even all know right like she doesn't even know what's yeah. supposed to happen and yeah it's it, like he uses the family's disorderedness because clearly they're a disordered family yes to justify his atheism yes and he continues to do that every time he focuses on their problems. Yes. It's like he uses that as, see, your Catholicism is just 
you're bonkers. not perfect. You're yeah. not perfect. You haven't found this. happiness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and in a way, he's right. But what I, I think the genius of this book to me was my own revelation that the whole book, really, yeah. you pity Sebastian. Mm. And you worry about his influence on Charles. Mm. And it's almost like you think Charles is better off. Yeah. And then at some point you have this revelation, wait, Charles has a terrible life. Yeah. Like you should pity him. Yes. Sebastian at least has always recognized his problem, mm. has known it, and always knew where he should have gone but chose not to. Yes. And eventually he has his own conversion before yes. Charles. Yes. Of coming back to what he's always known to be true. It's almost as if Charles never knew what was true. Yes. And that's why he's to be more pitied. You're absolutely right. So let's let's go let's yep. go to that first part of the book. So this book really sweeps you into this really passionate and close friendship between Sebastian mm-hmm. Flight, who is a part of this Catholic family, and then Charles Ryder, who is an only child. Mm-hmm. And so he's really caught up in this friendship with Sebastian. I want to talk about the first book is called Et in Arcadia Ego. And this title is based off of a painting and it's thought to represent the lost world of idyllic bliss. And so the opening at Oxford is, um, as Mandy and I talked about like weeks ago as we're reading the book, you know, basically a lot of drunken but seemingly happy nights with them and all of these college friends. And they're sort of like live they seem to be living this very carefree existence. Yeah. What's their phrase? Isn't it contramundum? Yes. Like against the world. Like yes. we're just living our own way yes. and, and relishing in that. Yeah. And and things are bad, but good. I mean, they're not really p- passing their classes very well. They're not really being good members of society in any but way. They but they seem to enjoy it. Like, <laughs> and and it's, it seems celebratory. Mm-hmm. And then there's a shift. Yeah. And, and in that time of, of that idyllic bliss where they're just having fun, basically, Sebastian tells Charles about his family, right? And mm-hmm. he's and his faith to some extent. It seems to, Charles mentions this throughout the book, it seems to just always keep coming up, this religion thing. Right. And Cordelia, Sebastian's sister, says at one point, it like it's impossible not to. It just does. When, yeah. when it's a part of who you are, it just comes up. But Sebastian doesn't want to mix the two worlds of his family and his friend. Yeah. And what, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah. And where Charles or so, where Sebastian is. It says a lot about Charles because mm-hmm. he's not moved by logical arguments, which is why I think he really doesn't like Sebastian's older brother mm-hmm. because he is all logic. Yeah. This is my argument for this. Like apologetics, you know? Yes, yes. That's what he's feeding yeah. um, Charles. And that just does not move him. And I think another example where you see is his father. Mm. When he tries to get his son to realize you should not stay here, but you need Mm. to save your money. Like he's trying to teach his son a lesson because his son blew all his money. Now he's feeling the effects of it. So he has to go home. He can't go on vacation. And he's kind of just been like, whatever, I'll make the best of it. But his his dad cunningly, I think, is like, I'm going to make your life miserable while you're here, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to be like, oh, I invited your friends to dinner. And they're super boring people that he's not friends with. Yes. And it does. It pushes him out of the house and it, it kind of yes. makes him 
think, okay, I'm not going to make this mistake again. I will not overspend. Yes, I will not be spending vacation with my father. And I think his father knows that in Charles, Mm. is that an argument will fail against his son. And so he doesn't even try it. Yeah. And and I think the the people around him, his aunt, they think his dad's weak and obsessed mm. with his. And I think that's and, a wrong impression. And kind of stupid. Yeah, they think yeah. he's stupid. They think he doesn't care about his son. Yes. The cousin, remember the cousin who yes. implores him, stop doing these things. Yes. And it doesn't work. No. None of these lectures work on him, and mm. it's almost as if his father knows him best and has recognized that out of anyone. Mm. And I think that's why he likes Cordelia. Because she never tries to mm. impress with arguments or things or even defend. She always just has these simple ways of saying like, I'll pray for you. Mm. Or no, this is where happiness is. Like yeah. they're just declarations. Like it's, she's not trying yes. to prove anything to him yes. with them. I actually thought that was something that the family did beautifully. That mm. despite all of their their flawed ways of approaching their Catholicism and living out their religion, they each of, well, okay, I won't, not all of them. The mother, Lady Marchmain, yes. does her little talks, <laughs> and she's definitely trying to be more direct about yeah. um, bringing people to the faith. But the other siblings, I think, do a pretty good job of not being pushy, and even Julia, who Charles eventually has a relationship with and who I think is a big point of his conversion in mm-hmm. the end. Yeah. Um, she says very simple things to him that are cutting that he, at the time they just make him angry, but later mm-hmm. I think speak to him. For example, Charles doesn't want the sacraments, the final sacraments, anointing of the sick confession, etc., for Julia's father when he's dying. Mm-hmm. And he's so angry. Like he sees, this man's life as just casting off all religion. Why would we, you know, why would we force this on him now? Like, and Julia, and he says to Julia, basically, this is all bosh. Why do you want to force this? And she says, unfortunately, it's all true. Yeah. It's even, (laughs) even when she doesn't understand everything herself, she is very certain Mm. that that's the path to take. And she might not be able to explain why. Mm. And same with Sebastian, but it's like they both have this understanding yeah. that there's truth here. Yeah. And we might not be able to argue it with you, yeah. but we just are going to say, no, this is true. Like, yeah. my soul does matter. Yeah. Um, my dad's soul does matter. Yeah. And oh, gosh, we got to get into that at the end. How did oh. I just thought that imagery of the dad choosing to die at Brideshead. Yes. It was his revisiting. Let's talk about okay. it. Let's talk about it. No, we, we don't have to. Okay. Sorry if you haven't read the book before. Yeah. You really need to go read the book, but we're just going to dive in where we want to. So to just give a little context, um, so Sebastian and Julia and the other sibling's father has been estranged from their mother for 25 years, I yeah, think, or 30, very long time. 35 yeah. years. And he was away at war. Yes. And then never came back essentially and like settled down with this other woman in Italy. Yes. Instead. And it's a very interesting situation because well there there's just a lot of interesting comments made by the woman that um Kara that their father decides to settle with that make it seem like um he and Sebastian are very similar. Mm-hmm. That they have some similar struggles and that Kara says that um uh, Lord Marchmain hates Lady Marchmain. 
And I think it's partially because she helps him to see his flaws so yes. clearly. And she wants more Full for him. Sheen has a great... He says exactly this in, in one of his books called like Parenting and Teenagers or something. Mm. And he talks about in adolescence how when a kid wants to go against the world, contra mundum, yeah. and you are the anchor of that consciousness of mm. what they know to be right, but they're trying to go away from it, they hate you for being that. Yeah. And I feel like that poor lady, the light. she is hated by her entire family because she's trying to be that anchor yes. for them. And Oof. it is a life of suffering for her. And how much of the time are moms that person? It really is. Mm-hmm. That is the case. So after him living in sin, living this illicit relationship for many years in Italy, he's dying. And Lady Marchmain has died at this point. So the mother, yeah. the his his actual wife has passed away. Mm-hmm. He decides to come home and die at Brideshead at the estate, the family estate. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting timing because Bridie, the oldest brother, is marrying somebody that nobody in the family is excited about, and they're planning to live in the estate. And that all gets um, tossed out when he decides to come home. So why did you think? Lord Marchmain decides to yeah. return to Brideshead. So I love his revisiting of Bride. I just mm. love the title of this book mm. because it's all about revisiting something you thought you knew. Mm. But when you have a lifetime of experience and reflection and you come back to it, it tells a totally different story. It's almost like you had to do that to open your eyes, mm. to see it in a different light. So he's revisiting Brideshead. Yeah. And I think the reason why is... He's close to death. Mm -hmm. And that causes reflection of looking at my life. Am I proud of it? Am I I going the right path? Do I need to care about my immortal soul? Yeah. And that's why I think it's so interesting he chooses that this home that he hated, he had no interest whatsoever in coming back to it even after his wife had died. Yeah. He doesn't want to claim it. Yeah. But it's only when they find out he's dying that he makes this kind of surprising visit back. And those scenes where they are like, we need to go get a priest. We need to get a priest because he's going to die and we, we want him to have last rites. Yeah. And Charles is like adamant, like leave this poor man alone. Like, yeah. eh, do not do this to him. He does not want this. He's in his weakest state. We would be taking yeah. advantage of the, him. He saw it as total manipulation. Yeah. And he kicks out the priest the first time. And you almost think Charles is right. Yes. That they are pushing this and on him. And he celebrates. Charles yeah. celebrates. He's like, yeah, See, like, I was look right at, about this. Yeah, great. I'm glad he was assertive. And then they look at his words. And his yeah. words kicking him out were not, I don't want to see a priest. I, I'm not, I'm not yeah, going to be converted. This. I don't believe I, this. Yeah. He said, I'm not dying now. Mm. And... That's what Julia points out to Charles. Mm. He did not say, I never want to see this priest again. He sent him away, basically insinuating, this is not the right time. Mm. When he is on the deathbed, I can't remember how much time elapses, like days or weeks later. I think it might be weeks. I think it's weeks. Okay. Yeah. And they bring the priest back against Charles. 
advice and he and even tries to get the doctor on his side and he's basically unconscious yeah. at this point yeah he's not speaking to anybody yeah and so julia is very worried for her father's soul it, it's very very clear that this is the most concerning aspect to him and she brings this priest in and he sees him yes and that bothers charles so much because it's yes. almost like he thinks he had won the argument yes see this is all just fooey no yeah. one needs this on their deathbed even the doctor comes to say, I think this was good for him. How interesting, though, what in that scene, and I, I'm going to open my book to try yeah. to find the exact line, but when the priest comes in, Father McKay, or I forget what his name is, when the priest comes in, he goes to um, administer the sacraments, right? And then... Julia and Kara kneel at the bed. Yeah, at the, the mistress. Bed. So Kara's yes. the mistress of... Yes. And so Damn. they kneel at the end of the bed. And in a moment of... I mean, I was shocked when he did this. Charles says a prayer. So the priest comes in. Julia and Kara knelt at the foot of the bed. The doctor, the nurse, and I stood behind them. And the priest says... I know you are sorry for all the sins of your life, aren't you? Make a sign if you can. You're sorry, aren't you? But there was no sign. Okay, come forward a little bit. He's, he says he wants to absolve him. Um, and Charles kneels and prays, Oh God, if there is a God, forgive him his sins if there is such a thing as sin. And the man on the bed opened his eyes and gave a sigh, the sort of sigh I had imagined people made at the moment of death. But his eyes moved so that we knew that there was still life in him. And then he says, and I thought this was so beautiful. I suddenly felt the longing for a sign, if only of courtesy, if only for the sake of the woman I loved who knelt in front of me praying. The priest puts chrism on him to anoint him. And he, and, uh, and this is the moment when the sign of the cross happens. But Charles thinks he's just wiping the chrism off. He thinks Lord Marchmain is like, no, like wiping it off. Yes, and, yes. And, but he actually makes the sign of the cross over himself. And this moment was like, whoa, the door is never shut. Mm -hmm. Charles thinks religion is not that God cannot enter yeah. into Lord Marchmain's life, right? He calls it mumbo jumbo and the witch doctor has gone. And that's yes. his whole impression of, and he even mocks it later like, yeah. oh, so you put oil on them and they don't go to hell? Yeah. And yeah, like so that's his magic. view of it. Yeah. And so to, to see, like, that's why he's always looking for these signs of when someone's dying, why would they care about this mumbo jumbo? Yeah. And he almost has to admit, while he did care about it, Yes. So what am I supposed to do with that? Well, and what is this sudden longing yeah. that Charles has? Yes, and him, him himself even. Yes, he's he's really moved. Why, even though he doesn't understand, he's mm -hmm. really moved. Yeah, and longs for something. Yes, which makes me think of C.S. Lewis and his conversion. Well, what he calls baptizing his imagination. It was like feeling joy for the first time, feeling a longing for something that mm -hmm. he couldn't understand. Yeah. And later he says um, something not of this world, right? Yeah. If I have a yes. There it is again. <laughs> and, it, and Charles experiences this. And, and in the end, whether or not he admits it to the family, he wanted for Lord Marchmain to have this. Yeah. And what's beautiful about it is I think it shows 
this is not contrary, this feeling he has. Yeah. It's not contrary to the same feeling he had as a youth when he wanted to be against the world. Mm. You know, that phrase, contra mundum, we're against the city, yeah. against the society, against the world. And in a sense, our faith is not of this world. Yeah. And he was constantly seeking what's going to make me happy through this whole book, right? In college, yeah. it's the drinking, it's the camaraderie. Then but that dulls. Yeah, yeah. And he runs to something else. He runs away to South America. Yeah, he, he gets married, right? He gets married to this woman that it just seems like it's kind of like, hey, I'll try marriage kind of thing. Yes. And she seems like she's well-situated. Yes. So he marries her. He has kids. Not happy. Photography, artistry. He's happy for, or not photography, just artist. But he's happy for a while doing art, but then it has to get more extreme. He has to go to South America yeah. and paint these crazy landscapes. Even that dulls. Yeah. Then there's this adultery with Julia that yeah. he gets into and that's exciting for some time and yeah. seems to provide him some joy and that dulls yeah. again this this bride's head this idyllic vision he has that he's mm. chasing after he's chasing after and he's never finding it yeah and when he finds this feeling come again mm. in him when he's watching him lord marchman die i think he realizes just a little bit mm. there's something here i'm longing for mm. And he still can't quite put his finger on what it is. Yeah. And I feel like he's always had that relationship with Brideshead. It's a place that had charm over him. Yes. And I think in the beginning we think, oh, it's just like a castle or something. So it's, you know, it's, so it's where rich people and, live. Yeah. So it's stunning and it's beautiful. But as much as he hates it at certain times in his life, yeah. there's always this draw back mm. to it. And that's why I find it so funny at the end of the book that a war brings him back to it yes. totally unintentionally. Yes. And it's at that point I think he finally realizes what about the place had been the draw. Mm. And, and, oh, that's beautiful because Charles walks through, he's given a tour by one of his fellow soldiers of the house because the army is using it as barracks basically and mm -hmm. like training and offices and the men have been awful on the house right and yeah. he talks about the different disrepair that the house has fallen into yes and then he sees the chapel and on the outside it looks as if it's fallen into disrepair and he walks into it and he says that it's as if a day hasn't gone by that the the art and the the uh, appearance of the chapel is just as like bright and um, alive as mm -hmm. it always was and he talks about the lamp burning at the altar yes for the tabernacle and it's it's so beautiful because he got to experience so much with this family like god was constantly inviting him over the course of like 20 years he saw the light go out mm -hmm. when lady marchman died no one wanted to keep up the chapel and nobody wanted to use the chapel. And so yeah. the Jesus was taken from the chapel, right? Yeah. And it was no longer functioning as an active chapel. Yeah. And he saw the light go out. And so then he enters back in, in this state of war, in this state of unhappiness. He says to mm -hmm. one of his men um, that he's loveless, childless, alone, all of this. You know, he has yeah. this list. And then he comes into this chapel and 
the last line of the book, his sec it says his second in oh, command says, You're looking unusually cheerful today. Yeah. Like and he and I mean this man is sullen. Yes. Like in the first part of the book when you're you're going into how he's reflecting back, he hates the army and he had joined it. Like it showed you yeah. don't know what else happened in his life at this point, but it says how like he had this high hopes that it would provide him like yeah. this joy and like he was super excited to be in the army mm. and everything and just like he didn't care at all. Like yeah. it just became you could just tell he was this kind of listless man just like floating around. He did not sound fun to be around no. at all. <laughs> Joy kill. Yeah. And so for that last line, you're looking unusually cheerful today. It was, that's the point where Charles finally found what he had been looking for. And it wasn't in Julia. It wasn't in the army. It wasn't in his previous marriage or all these things that he thought he could could find it in it's in this chapel and i love yeah. that it focused on the the red candle mm. because in it it says it's almost like he realizes there's this timelessness outside of himself there's for some... the first time that it's yes. not him and his time and what he's done but this universal because he says the flame which the old knights saw from their tombs yes which they saw put out that flame that burns again for other soldiers far from home um, farther in heart than Acre of Jerusalem. And so he's like, it's almost like he's going back to ancient times. Yes. And realizing this is a universal truth that's been here. This isn't some fancy trend, some witch doctor thing. Yes. That people are attracted to currently. But And for me, I when I read that, that description of, of this light being seen by people throughout the ages, I thought... It's a person like he's finally really realizing this is the relationship that mm -hmm. I've been looking for. Yes. Right. Like he's he's he is very relational. Like he keeps trying mm -hmm. out these different relationships, hoping yeah. that this relationship is the one that's going to really. I mean, yeah, he's, we, he's obsessed with relationships because he. He's becomes obsessed with there. Sebastian. Yeah. And then with... And that, that's a good thing to talk about with the gay thing. Yeah. Because I think this kind of answers it. So if you don't know, a lot of people like assume the closeness between Sebastian and Charles is kind of like of a gay nature. Yes. And that they're involved in all the sin and things like that. And, and to be fair, on that. Wa kind of like plays it up that like this is even the appearance to some other people around them because... Anthony Blanche, one of their very crazy friends, you know, basically says you're obsessed with him. And they yeah. go to a club at one point and the girls there call them fairies. Like they don't think they're interested in women. Yeah. And so there's like some kind of question like, well, what what is the nature of their relationship? Right. And I think how you can answer that is it it's not so much focusing on if they're gay or not, but realizing how Charles is actually using Sebastian. Yes. He's using, he's using him to fill a void, mm. right? His mother's gone. He doesn't have that relationship. He has yeah. a distant relationship with his father. And yeah. so he's almost looking to Sebastian to supply all this joy that he's looking for. Yes. So in a sense, yeah, he's not looking for a relationship with a lady because that for him would be shallow. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Sexual. Like, yeah. I'm just going to get this out of you. I think he's looking for a deep and meaningful relationship. Yes. And that's kind of where there's that line of like, okay, he's overly obsessed with Sebastian. And you could kind of read that those things into it. Yes. 
And but, he and he thinks he's found it in Sebastian. Right. Because he would have been content for their first year of life together, their friendship, to continue to go on. Yeah. But Sebastian changes. Mm-hmm. Because Sebastian is not satisfied in his relationship yeah. with Charles. Yeah. And, and Charles feels that when yeah. they get distant. And he thinks it's, I'm jealous because you're friends with my mom now. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what it really is, is... Charles lost his novelty at some point. Yeah. And then where does he turn? Alcohol. Also, yes. And did Charles lose his novelty because he's finally been introduced, and and granted he's still completely skeptical and unbelieving, to what Sebastian knows to be true? Yeah, good question. He knows before that point that Charles has never experienced faith. Right. He's never been introduced to it. And Sebastian does know the truth, so he knows he's not on that road. Charles is safe mm-hmm. for a while. For Sebastian, yeah. Charles is a safe person. Okay, I want to talk about a, a something that comes up twice in the book. Julia and Charles talk about how Sebastian was the forerunner. Oh, yes. Twice. This comes up. They use this word twice, and... Charles wholeheartedly admits he was the forerunner. Like, almost like, I don't think he understands how he's saying that word and how he's Mm. using it. But for me, as I read that, I thought, John the Baptist. Yeah. Like... It, when you look at the the arc of the entire story, yeah. At the time that they're saying it, Julia and Charles are just getting together, yeah. And then it's later when they are still together, and it's clearly not a peaceful relationship because they can't really be together in the way that Julia yeah. knows is right. Right. But Sebastian, whether or not he wanted to, mm-hmm. knowing the truth, and then ending up needing to pursue the truth yes. in his flawed and broken way. Yeah. He was a forerunner to conversion for Charles yeah. later in his life. And that's a good point because I think Sebastian's is such an extreme open case that everyone sees going on. Mm. They almost compare their situation to his when they start feeling those same feelings like this is what Sebastian was feeling. Mm. So like, for example... You know, Julia is kind of like, I'm going to marry high up and she's all yeah. focused on this and she marries this big guy and he, who's got a lot of money but doesn't really, you know it's not going to be a happy marriage. Yeah. When she realizes it's not a happy marriage, I think she then sees where Sebastian was. Mm. That I'm not being useful. like, And that's where Sebastian has his conversion. He wants to become useful to somebody. Yeah. Like he wants to be used for some good. And so he finds that trash guy, German, yeah. who is yeah. worse off than Sebastian is. And the reason why he's drawn to him is, again, not I think take, because he's gay, but because he can take care of he someone. He can take care of someone actually needs him for yes. something. Yes. And that then leads him to further seek other things. Yeah. So obviously that's not a perfect conversion in that moment. But he realizes... I need to be useful. I need to come outside of myself. And I think Julia reads the same thing in her marriage. I need to be useful. Like, Mm. I need to do something meaningful. And Cordelia all along is doing that. She's the one sibling that's figured that out. She went off and did something meaningful and Mm -hmm. helped people. You know, she's she's honestly maybe the most perfect heroine of the book. I feel like she's a little angel because in most of the books, she's just this little girl. 
yeah. that you kind of picture yeah. as just the sweet innocence yeah. and speaking truth. And just so, she's so... And not corrupted. She has no um, artifice. She's just very honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like, you know, what a blessing for that mother to at least have... One child. That child be such a light to you yes. in the midst of the darkness of all these things. And she ends up being such a uniting force for the family when the dad comes home to die. Yeah. She is like the one taking care of him and the one mm-hmm. making sure everybody's taken care of and bringing the priest in and everything. Hey. Yeah, very interesting. I And I, I, I think it's funny how Charles views her too when he sees her like, yes. oh man, she got ugly. Yeah. Like that's really how he views it. Like what a waste. Yeah. And then plain. he sits and talks with her yeah. and realizes beyond her appearances, there's something he's still drawn to in her. Mm. And again, that's that searching for that light that he eventually he's finds. He's drawn to this whole family. Yeah. <laughs> like each of them in a different way. Yes. Um, and it, it's what I think the family has deep down, although they have all these problems. Yeah. He's realizing there's something there that keeps bringing him back. So uh, Mandy and I were talking about um, the sort of discussion questions and th- funny things that are in the back of my edition, which <laughs> I think is the only edition that's sold now. But um, one of the que- you can tell that the questions are told by a person who may have no faith because um, they say, "Oh, this book <laughs> may or may not be Catholic, basically." Um, but Waugh says that it's a Catholic book. And yeah. I just laugh reading that because of everything it's we've so just been funny. talking about. Well, it's like, it's a Charles character reading this book that hasn't yeah. yet had the journey. They yes. need to revisit Brideshead it's Revisited like, you later. You are Charles. <laughs> you are Charles. Uh, and you need to maybe go have some life experiences and come yeah. back to this book. Yeah. And see it in a different, like, just like he had to come back to Brideshead because, yeah, it's almost like they're looking for... Those, like, okay, I'll give you an example. So I have a book from the library and someone penciled stuff in. And they were looking for every gay thing they could find and every (laughs) anti-Catholic thing they could find. And I just find it so funny because I'm like, that's Charles. That's what he's doing. He's trying to disassemble at every point. Yeah. And it's not until it impacts his own life and he's tried everything else that he's willing to give this a shot and maybe not view it as he had viewed it before and it's only then that he experiences what he's been searching for so i yeah i just find that so funny that they're all these all different kinds of people are drawn to this book yes um and will get different things out of it depending on where their own life is and how open their heart is Mm -hmm. to reading it it's kind of fun to look at this book in light of like evangelization yeah um because it's a hot topic today, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of people have very strong opinions yeah. about what evangelization should look like, and I feel like you find them all in the book. Like, mm. the youth groups, let's party! Yeah. Like, Catholics, it's, it's fun, guys! <laughs> and they just take that approach, and you realize that's going to wear off. Yeah. Because just like his party days wore off, yeah. You know, you can't associate Catholicism with that yes. because that's not where you're going to find it. Yes. And and also that you don't have to be perfect yes. to evangelize. Look at how messed up this family is. Yeah. But they they recognize that. Yes. And <laughs> and I think that this book really like spoke to me and I feel like this is a book about me. Yeah, like mm-hmm. no, I don't 
have an alcoholism problem in Europe and no, I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Like I'm not having Julia's struggles, but it wasn't like their sin specifically, but Mm -hmm. um, my sin applied to me and like my clinging to it and being resistant of God's grace in my life on whatever, you know, scale and, you know, specific that is. I really, really understood. Like, I'm like, you, I get it. You want to, you want to cling to your worldly pleasures. You want to cling to your habits and your comforts. Yeah. And it's so hard to let go of that. Mm -hmm. And you can see with all of these characters, like it is a lifelong struggle of trying to let go. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't mean that what we believe isn't true because we're not living it perfectly. It means that we have to keep striving until that last moment, until the end. And, and it's never too late and it's never too late. So yeah, I, I particularly like this book as a cradle Catholic because I think there's some personalities that don't ever maybe question their faith and just, Mm. they just rely on the truth of it. Yeah. And just say, oh, well, I'm a rule follower, so I don't mind following all these yeah. rules. And I feel like if you're that kind of Catholic, this book is super helpful to open your eye to mm. a different world where someone is legitimately trying to find mm. happiness and why they would look to all these places to do that. Yeah. And to get you to see a different type of journey in a sense, as well yeah. as the same. Like like yeah. you said, we have to, even as Catholic, we're going to have things that we need to to yeah. get rid of and that are attractive to us and that we can misplace for our priorities and things of that nature. But to me, I, I just thought it was so helpful when you don't grow up hearing these things, Yeah, what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and, and him coming from a world of atheism was profoundly interesting to me because yeah. the soul wasn't even a concern to him. No, it wasn't even a thing to yeah. him. It's just here and now. And just to think about how you would view the world if that was what you grew up in, it'd yeah. be very interesting, you know. Yeah. Gosh, I could talk forever. I know. About this So book. much to unpack. Um, but I think that's the beauty of it. You can revisit it, right? Yes. And most <laughs> of the people that I, I reached out to to just say, I, I want your thoughts on the book. I know you have good thoughts on the book. Said, I've read it three or four times. You know, it's yeah. like something that you really... Well, when I finished reading it, I wanted to immediately start it again and and read it knowing what I knew and reflect a little bit more on some some mm-hmm. parts of it. But um, And it's one I, I plan on returning to. I'm going to keep it on my shelf because I think if I read it 20 years from now, mm. there'd be different things I'd view or connect with or pull out of that would be totally different than what I'm getting out of it right now. Yeah. And so that's why it's really a timeless book in that aspect is yeah. it's a whole journey of life. So yeah. you're going to see it from different points wherever you are yeah. on yours. And it, it's a book written for regular people searching for happiness, I think, mm-hmm. which is all all of us. I, I just We all are it. contra mundum yes. looking <laughs> for happiness outside of this world. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Final thought. Did you love it? This is something that we've talked about in the book club a couple of times. Um, there's a difference between books that move you and books that are comforting, I guess. But what what's your feeling after finally finishing I this I loved book? this one because I thought it was both. Mm. At the same time, it pulls the rug out under you. Yeah. It provides something to fall on. 
Oh. So it's not just despairing or, oh my gosh, I'm reading about this alcoholic Sebastian and yeah. it's like heavy yeah. and, you know, I just want to think of happy thoughts. Like it is happy though. And that's what I like about it. And, and I think is makes it easy to read in yeah. terms of turning those pages and not feeling like you're super somber. I yes. mean, we read Dracula before and I would say <laughs> that one is a totally different reading experience because yes. you're just like, this is freaky yeah. and heavy yeah. and like you almost have to watch comedy after it to like yes. come out of it. Yes. I don't feel like this book fits that category. I think it's a very comforting book in, yes. in that it does that. Wonderful. Well, up next for us is, for Grace and I, is The Everlasting Man. We've had a couple weeks of delay just with life, but um, we're hoping to record on Everlasting Man next weekend and, and getting something out to you guys soon. I hope you enjoyed this discussion of Brideshead Revisited, and I really hope you read it if you haven't read it. Um, it's, it's, as Mandy said, it pulls the rug out from under you, but yes, you have something to land on. So definitely a, a book that I think everyone should read at least once in their lifetime. If you want to get in contact with us or share any of your thoughts with us, uh, our Instagram is at pintswithchesterton. Our website is pintswithchesterton.com and our email is pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. And we always look forward to hearing from you guys. May you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers.